Welcome to the LBC podcast, where we explore Christian theology and practice for the building up of God's family. My name is Joel Lapierre, and I'm the high school director at LBC. And I'm Josh White. I'm the adult ministries director at LBC. Yep. And so uh, normally on the podcast, we uh, take something from our current sermon series uh, subject and we uh, take it on the podcast and expand upon it and um, study it more. But uh, we were recently approached uh, by a couple of uh, people from the congregation who wanted to hear more about the subject of Calvinism. We thought that would be a great subject to cover on the podcast. And so that's the topic for today uh, is Calvinism. Is it biblical is going to be really the uh, heart of the issue that we're going to look into. So Josh, why don't you go ahead and take it away? I know we have a lot to cover, so we're going to look at the subject of Calvinism. Take it away. What is Calvinism? Yeah, so first question for today is, is, is what is Calvinism? Before we, uh, before we really answer the question, or as we answer the question, is Calvinism biblical, we really have to look at what is Calvinism? Yeah. Um, how is it defined um, and, and what what do we mean when we use that term? So to give kind of some clarification, I want to I want to start with with a few thoughts before we really dig into that. So yeah. Calvinism is is a challenging subject for for a lot of people. A lot of people have have had uh, poor experiences with other people who claim to be Calvinists, and so it's it's a challenging subject to to address. And so some some thoughts to provide some clarification as we answer that question kind of are these. So there's going to be genuine believers who disagree on this subject. Um, and and the purpose for today is is not to explain the differing or the opposing views on this subject, but really rather to talk about what do we believe as a church and where do we see that in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And with that, it's important to understand that the gospel is what always must be primary. And so there's going to be different things within Christianity that we disagree about, but we have to understand that believing the gospel, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and for reconciliation to God is what is primary and is what we must agree on. And so as we start to talk about this subject today, the intention is not to cause division today, but really to explain where the concepts of Calvinism are found in the Bible. And our hope in doing that today is really that you would see a great amount of humility from us, mm-hmm. um, also that you would see a high regard for Scripture, and that most importantly, you would see the great mercy and loving kindness of our God and what He has done for us um, in His plans for us in salvation. Um, and so with that, the 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 subject of Calvinism is an important subject. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly important. And it, it is important because it deals with the subject of how a person is saved. And so to clarify that, we know that salvation comes through the gospel. What do I mean by that? We mean that Christ died in our place on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins, and that by repenting and believing in him, we are forgiven of all of our sins we're reconciled to God, and we're saved from his wrath. But what does the process of 
someone going from unbeliever to believer actually look like? That is the subject matter that Calvinism deals with and really explains. And so as we answer that question, what is Calvinism? I want to give really a formal definition of Calvinism. Um, And this is from a book. It's a quote from a a book called Mere Calvinism, which will be referenced a lot today. Um, And it's written by a guy named Jim Jim Oreck. So Oreck says, a Calvinist believes that God initiates, sustains, and completes the salvation of everyone who gets saved. I'll say that again. A Calvinist believes that God initiates, sustains, and completes the salvation of everyone who gets saved. And so, in other words, Calvinism summarizes the process of salvation as the Bible describes it. And the process of salvation, how you go from an unbeliever to a believer, that we see revealed in the scripture primarily involves God initiating, sustaining, and completing our salvation. And so, the biblical teachings that Calvinism summarizes are really condensed into what is known as the five points of Calvinism. So when you hear the word Calvinism, it's going to be associated with what's called the five points of Calvinism. And the five points of Calvinism just help explain um, in an in a summarized way and in a way that's easy to remember what Calvinism is about. And so the five points of Calvinism are summarized with the acronym TULIP. So that acronym is is spelled T-U-L-I-P, TULIP. So each of those letters stands for a different thing. So that acronym stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So that's kind of a formal definition um, of Calvinism and what we mean when we use the term. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add to that, Joel? Yeah, I just think like personally as I've studied these, and and they're they're also known as the doctrines of grace, um, and they explain some of the, the deeper understandings of God's sovereignty and man's free will and how how that all like works together. And I can tell you from my own personal experience when I first um, started to learn a little bit more about Calvinism and what it would explain it, it was helpful for me to know that it was they were summarizing points of of what the Bible was trying to make about how how does that work? How does the plan of salvation work? And um and so I I my my hope for this this whole this whole podcast is for people who have maybe never like heard of Calvinism or have understood this before. My, my hope is for them to have the same experience that I had with it, which is um, understanding that um, our condition is more terrible than we actually thought um, our like meaning our, our human condition um, and that on our own, it's actually more hopeless than you think, but with God's grace, it's even greater hope. It's even bigger grace. It's even more powerful than you could ever even fathom or imagine. Um, Cause that's what happened for me is uh, when I started to understand these things as Calvinism correctly summarized biblical truths for me, it, it, it blew my mind and it really, it really made grace so much sweeter for me when I started to see um, um, just how that it was summarized in this way. 
And so that's that's my hope for everyone who's going to listen to this, um, that they'll, they'll they'll see God's grace, how immense it is, how great um, and how amazing God's grace is and uh, how truly depraved and how how in need we are of a Savior. And so that's that's all I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think you summarize that so well by saying that that we will realize as we study this that that we are far more in need and far more hopeless mm -hmm. than we often understand but yet in light of that god is so much more loving and he is so much more powerful oh, yeah. and we often recognize as well and so we when we realize our the greatness of our need the greatness of our hopelessness it only makes what christ has done for us even better yeah. and it causes us to to have more affection for what he's done to praise him even more and so mm -hmm. that's part of the hope too is for today is that, is that as we dig into these things that it, it's not just about having correct doctrine. Correct doctrine is absolutely important, but correct doctrine is supposed to lead to correct worship. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's, that's part of the hope for today. Absolutely. So as we kind of move forward, before we dig into those five points, it's always helpful to understand some history. So kind of like, where did Calvinism come from? Why why specifically is that name or title used to describe these concepts? Um, and, and because a lot of what, what, what I see in people having a hard time with Calvinism is that having a difficult time from Calvinism most often comes from a failure to really understand what Calvinism is. Um, and so the more that you really can understand what Calvinism is, you know, the more that that will really help you. Um, understand those truths. And so it is important to look at kind of some 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 short history. So I'm going to summarize some things and I'm going to read some quotes here too, because um, as I studied on this topic, the history of Calvinism, there just was some really good content that I would rather read than, than try to summarize in my own words. Yeah. And so to give kind of a short history of Calvinism, um, the, 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 the title Calvinism is associated with the person known as John Calvin. So John Calvin was a French reformer who lived from 1509 to 1564. Um, what's important um, about that is, is that the Calvinism and the five points of Calvinism actually didn't come specifically from John Calvin. Um, Calvinism was no, or John Calvin was known for expounding and defending um, these views, the content of Calvinism, but kind of the structure of Calvinism and the five points of Calvinism came later. And so Calvinism is associated with John Calvin primarily because he de he defended the truths that are within um, Calvinism, but those specific points of Calvinism came later. Um, and so what's interesting is that the five points of Calvinism actually came from the opposite of Calvinism or developed from the opposite of Calvinism. So the opposite of Calvinism is known as, is known as Arminianism. And so I want to read kind of some, 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 
sections of a book really briefly that explain kind of how the five points of Calvinism really developed. And this is from a book called The Five Points of Calvinism Defined, Defended, and Documented. And it's by David Steele, Curtis Thomas, and Lance Quinn. Um, I would really, if you want to know more about this subject, they go into great detail about the history of Calvinism, but here's kind of the the summary of it. So it says, um, in 1610, just one year after the death of James Arminius, a Dutch seminary professor, his followers drew up five articles of faith based on his teachings. The Arminians, as his followers came uh, came to be called, presented these five doctrines to the state of Holland um, in the form of, of what's called a remonstrance. Um, they wanted the official standards of the Church of Holland revised on these subject, subjects. And then later on, it goes to say that uh, a national uh, synod was called to meet in Dort in 1618 for the purpose of examining these, examining the views of Arminius um, in light of the Scripture. And then it goes on to say there were 154 sessions held during the seven months that the Synod met to consider these matters, the last of which was May 9th in 1619. And so as they um, considered what the scriptures said um, on the teaching of Arminianism, it says this they proceeded to do embodying the Calvinistic position in the five chapters which have ever since been known as the five points of Calvinism. So to kind of explain what's happening there, to summarize that history, the Arminians presented five articles to the Church of Holland because they didn't agree with the doctrines that the Church of Holland was supporting and teaching, such as um, like predestination. Um, and so this led to a national synod, which is basically just an assembly of clergy members. Um, and so what happened as they met and considered the scriptures was that they rejected the five articles of Arminianism, but not only did they reject them, they responded by uh, looking at the scriptures and really by condensing and summarizing and writing the five points of Calvinism. And so the five points of Calvinism um, were in direct response to um Arminian teaching, which is kind of the opposite of Calvinism. And so that's kind of the summary of, of how Calvinism is associated with John Calvin and how the points of Calvinism kind of develop throughout history. Is there anything you want to add to that, Joel, or comment yeah, on? Yeah, I would just say, um, yeah, I, I love history and I love learning about um, John Calvin. And, uh, you know, I think it's a good point. And I don't know if you've already even made this point, but uh, we don't we don't worship John Calvin, you know, and we, we recognize that uh, he's a sinful man. And, um, you know, there's many things I uh, respect and I like and I, I agree with uh, with John Calvin and um, and many of his writings. He's, he's a theologian, a pastor. Um, I love his institutes. Um 
Uh, but there's things the, I have theological differences with with John Calvin, and uh, and he also did many sinful things because he was a sinful man. And so um, I think it's important for people to understand that. And and I think you already basically touched on this, but we want to be all about the scriptures, and that's what we have a high regard for. We don't have a high regard for John Calvin in the sense that we don't we don't believe he's uh, infallible um, and inerrant. Um, you know, we we believe that uh, you know he has uh, many great points and um, and was good at summarizing scripture and it was a he's a good theologian in many senses but uh, not everything we agree with so um but but yeah it's a it's an amazing um thing to understand the history of how it actually got all started because you know even him he wouldn't even he didn't even know that this was all summarized on, and it's, it's crazy to think like he, he has no clue what calvinism is in the sense that he didn't he didn't create the five points. He just uh, he just put the doctrines of grace out there, and uh, he championed them. And uh, you know, then then the history developed after him. So yeah, so so that's what we need to get into now. Like, what are these five points, and uh, you know, how do we see that in scripture? So you know, what are the points of Cal- Calvinism? Where do you see that in the Bible? Yeah, so that's kind of the that's kind of the next question. Um, and and also to comment on your previous, what you had mentioned previous, was yeah. that one of the themes that we want to develop um, throughout this podcast is that we don't believe Calvinism is biblical because we love John Calvin, John Calvin, and follow his teachings, yeah. right? Um, as Joel mentioned, there 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 is wonderful. John Calvin has has did tons of wonderful things and he taught the scriptures faithfully and, and still there's, there's, we, there's theological differences. Um, and so what we want to see developed here is that, is that fundamentally we believe that, that Calvinism rightly represents the scriptures and the truth that the scriptures put forward as it concerns salvation. Um, but to move forward, we mentioned previously the, the the five points of Calvinism um, are total depravity, right. unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So let's kind of walk through each of those and look yeah. at where do what what does that mean when we say use those terms and where do we see that in the Bible most importantly. So we'll start with total depravity and what you're going to see hopefully through this is that there's a logical flow to the way that these are laid out. Yes. Um, there's a reason that we're going to explain that these truths are put in this order. And, and part of it that you're going to see is really that if you agree with the first one, then if you agree with total depravity, then the rest of what follows, you really logically also must agree with as well. Yes. It logically follows that if you agree with what total depravity is, that the rest also makes sense. The rest is what follows and is how God has worked out salvation in our lives. And so let's look at total depravity. Um, So again, I'm going to use a definition, read a definition from Jim Oreck. So he defines total depravity as every component of human nature has been infected with sin. Every component of human nature has been infected with sin. And so in other words, total gravity is really the concept that all of who you are as a human being is fully affected by sin. And so this includes your mind, the way you think, this includes your will, 
And this also includes your emotions as well. And so where do we see this most importantly in the scriptures? There, there's a few key scriptures that I want to look at that really demonstrate the truth of this well. And then we'll kind of summarize what these scriptures are saying and look at kind of some of the implications that come from total depravity. So the main passage as it concerns total depravity is going to be Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. So this is what God's word says in Ephesians 2. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so what you see really from that is that we're we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Mm -hmm. Dead things don't do anything. They're dead, right? But it, it's not as if you're dead in your sins and you're you're morally neutral. Um, that's not what this verse communicates. It, it's that you're dead in your sins, but then look what it says. It says that as you are dead in your sins, you follow the world, you follow the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. So you follow the world, you follow Satan, and then in doing so, you follow the desires of your mind and your heart, which are by nature evil and sinful and wicked, right? Right. And, and, and so that's kind of the way that total depravity is summarized, summarized very well is in that, in that verse. We see this, this concept that we're totally uh, affected by sin in every way possible in other passages as well. So for example, uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, And you who are alienated, so you are separated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds— he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach. So, so there's a contrast in this passage of who you are mm -hmm. compared to what Christ has done before you. So it's saying before Christ, you were, you were alienated. So you were separated from God. And not only were you separated, but you were hostile in mind. You willingly were rebelling against God. You're not being separated from God. You're not neutral. You're hostile in mind. You're his enemy. You're actively rebelling against him and doing evil deeds. In addition to that, we see in Romans chapter 3, the same concept. It says, uh, and in Romans, Paul is actually quoting from Psalms. And he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. And so again, we see that concept that, that in our nature without Christ, that we don't seek righteousness, that we don't pursue God, but that we pursue the things of the world and the things of our own, the intention, the sinful intentions of our own hearts and minds. And then lastly, uh, in Genesis 6, 5, before the flood, we see a very clear description of, um, just the nature of, of mankind. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Mm -hmm. 
that is the state of of who we are. And, and when we look at the flood, the the flood didn't solve that problem. That wasn't the intention of the flood. The flood demonstrated that there is judgment and there are consequences for sin, but it foreshadowed the fact that God was going to make one way to himself, that he was going to provide the way of salvation, which was demonstrated in the fact that he chose to save Noah and his family, right? And so the the flood didn't solve that wickedness and the 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 every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually it showed and demonstrated that there is judgment for sin uh, that judgment is coming in the future but that god prepared a way for salvation so those are some of the key verses and the reason that we're looking at multiple verses is because no doctrine of scripture is based on one verse and, and we've only looked at these were only four scriptures this concept is throughout the entirety of the scriptures. I've just chosen the four that I think are probably the most clear in the scriptures. Um, right. But but this concept is throughout the scriptures. So these are four of the most clear. So what do we what do we see from from these scriptures? We really see that from these verses that we are fully separated from God because of our sin and that sin affects every part of who we are as human beings. And in a, in addition to that, part of that is that we are enslaved to sin. That's what, I didn't mention this passage, but that's what Romans 6, 16 and 17 says, that you will either be a slave to sin or you will be a slave to righteousness. Either way, you are a slave. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're without Christ, we're separated from him, um, fully affected and infected by sin and enslaved to it. And so the conclusion that comes from this truth about our human nature is that we are completely incapable of initiating a, re- a relationship with God because of our the 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 greatness of our sin right. and how it's affected all of us every aspect of our lives. And so we are incapable of initiating that relationship with him. And we are incapable of, of choosing him. Right. Is there any clarification that you want to provide on kind of this subject? Yeah. yeah. Um, you made some really great points. I think I just have some, I don't know if I'm really clarifying, but just adding on to this. And um, I'm going to be quoting uh, Charles uh, Haddon Spurgeon a lot throughout this because uh, he, he was a great uh, preacher in the 19th century in London, England. And uh, he, you know, he was a Calvinist himself and uh, he just has some really great quotes on, on Calvinism. And so uh, specifically on total depravity, uh, he says this, um, through the fall and through our own sin, the nature of man has become so debased, depraved and corrupt that it is impossible for him to come to Christ without the assistance of God, the Holy Spirit. And so I think what's important to understand on the point of total depravity is that man is um, utterly incapable of, of, 
reaching salvation on their own. It's utterly incapable of reaching out to God. It is God who it has to initiate first. And I think that's an important point to make. And I have a couple scriptures to kind of back that up to support that. As you've quoted so many great scriptures, I have a few of my own. Um, John 6, 63, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, it is the spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That understanding the flesh is no help at all. Talking about man, if on our own we cannot um, save ourselves. And then um, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. And so that's a great point to understand that it is sick. We, we can't even understand our own heart on our own. Um, we need God's initiating. We need his help. We need his grace. And then even... The idea, I think some people, you know, see, but what about when we do good things? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that righteous? Doesn't that show that we have the capability of doing good on our own? And uh, to to refute that, Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's like as if we were trying to clean ourselves up um, with dirty rags. And so um, our righteous deeds are that way. Um, on our own, our righteous deeds are not righteous to God. Um, they are just an attempt to clean ourselves up and, uh, and they don't make a way to salvation. And so we need the enabling of God's grace in our lives. We need his sovereign power to initiate that change. Um, and we need to come to Christ only through him and we can't do that on our own. And so that's the only thing I have to say about, uh, total depravity. Yeah. And, and I want to provide some more clarification too, because because as we get into kind of the next, you know, points of Calvinism, I want to address kind of the subject of free will, because that's always the 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 tension I think when you talk about uh, Calvinism and we talk about God's sovereignty, predestination, and election is like, well, what about free will? Don't we have free will, the ability, um, you know? to choose, to make decisions. Right. Um, and so, and so, yeah, to, it's helpful to clarify the idea of free will under kind of the, the, the doctrine of total depravity. Um, because what we've looked at is that in the beginning, I mentioned that, that, to, that total depravity means that, uh, that sin is, has affected every aspect of who we are as, um, as human beings. And so as it has affected every aspect of who we are as human beings, that includes our will, that includes our ability to make decisions. Right. right? And so we do have the, the ability to make decisions, but it's affected and influenced and saturated by sin. Right. Um, And so to provide some more clarification on that, part of the problem with, with, rightly understanding free will is that most people's understanding of what free will is, is really not what the Bible says about free will. Most people's understanding of free will is what the world has told them is free will. So usually people think that free will means that they have the ability to make any decision that they want without anything else that's influencing that decision. decision. And as we've seen with total depravity, that's not true at all. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures have said, no, you, you, you do have the ability to make decisions, 
but it is affected by sin. And so what's kind of, what do we remember? What we saw in those passages is that really that man always chooses to pursue the world, the desires of his own heart. And in doing so is, is following Satan. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we don't have a free will in that you don't see that in scriptures that we have a free will and that we can choose to do anything that we want without the influence of anything else. We do have the ability to choose to make our own decisions. We are responsible for those decisions, mm -hmm. but those decisions will always be on our own sinful and evil and wicked. I, I appreciate this quote from, uh, from Preston Pierce, which says, yet man's will is not morally neutral. Rather, it is in bondage to sin, and without divine grace, he chooses freely and consistently to reject God. Hmm. Without divine grace, he chooses freely and consistently to reject God. And so that's what we've seen in the passage, passages that we've looked at. And that's what leads to that conclusion from total depravity that we don't have the ability to choose God because we will always choose in our sinful nature to reject him and to rebel against him. And there's more passages that we see on that subject. Just to, to mention a few, John, John 6, 44 is one. It says, mm -hmm. no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And so you see that you see that concept that it's not a, us initiating the salvation process, but rather God drawing us to Himself. We also see the 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 way that we are enticed and in bondage to sin and following after Satan in Second Timothy chapter two verse uh, twenty six. Um, it, it speaking about unbelievers, um, it says, and they may. The hope is that, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay. And so that's part of the bondage that we're in, in sin. That's part of the problem of our nature and what we pursue is that we're in bondage to sin and we're not morally neutral. We're following Satan. And in, in doing so, we're doing, we're pursuing the desires of our own heart. And so hopefully what you see from that concept of total depravity is that we are utterly incapable of pursuing God apart from him initiating the relationship with us. And so that leads to uh, the concept of the second point of Calvinism, which is unconditional election. Um, so unconditional election is is a really challenging um, subject. It's it's one of kind of the points of of Calvinism probably that people struggle to understand um, the most. Mm -hmm. um, and so we will try to to explain it well, to explain it uh, clearly, and hopefully you see God's mercy and God's loving kindness in it. So again, to provide a definition. Um, Jim Oreck provides um, some great clarification, and this is how he he describes unconditional election with, again, the understanding that what we've just looked at has said that we cannot choose God. We cannot initiate our relationship with God. And so the logical conclusion is that God is the one who, who chooses 
those whom are saved. That's kind of the, the summary of what unconditional election is. And so Oryx says, the Bible teaches that before God had created anyone or anything, he decided that he would choose or elect some humans to be his adopted children. And notice what it says in this next part. It says, no one deserved this honor. No one deserved this honor. God did not foresee any condition in them that prompted him to choose them. So we say that God chose them unconditionally. And then in addition to that as well, what's interesting is that, or it goes on to say that some form of the word election or predestination appears around 50 times in the New Testament. And so you must believe something about the doctrine of election. Um, we, we can't think, we can't reject the doctrine of election or predestination because by saying that it's not in the scriptures, because it is in the scriptures throughout the scriptures. And so we have to believe something about it. And so kind of the concept that, that, that comes from total depravity is that if, if we cannot choose God, then that must mean that in the process of salvation, he has chosen whom will be saved in his sovereignty um, and and in his kindness and in his mercy. And so where do we see that in scriptures most importantly? One of the primary places for that is Ephesians chapter one. It says, and we'll look at verses three through six. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so notice before he uses, before Paul uses the term predestination, he actually defines what predestination is right. in the previous section. So he really defines it by saying that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him that we would be holy and blameless. And so unconditional election is, is involves God choosing those whom would be saved before the foundation of the world, before he had ever created them. And predestination doesn't mean that God foresaw in the future and knew that knew who would choose him. That's how some people try to explain predestination, that God knew, that God chose them, chose who would be saved because he knew in the future that they would choose him. Right. The problem with that is that the first point that we looked at has already said that we're incapable of choosing God. Right. And so we also see that that that's not the case in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 48 helps kind of clarify what is meant um, in predestination and in election and in election. And so um, in this kind of context, the gospel is being preached in Acts. And after the gospel is being preached to the Gentiles, listen to what it says. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this being the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to what it says. And as, as 
many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Hmm. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So what's happening in that passage is that those who believed in that setting believed because God had already chose them and appointed them to eternal life. What you don't see in the passage is that they were appointed because God knew that they were going to believe. It's the opposite. The logical flow is that God had already appointed them. He had already chosen chosen those specific people that they would come to trust in him for the salvation of their souls, for the forgiveness of their sins, for reconciliation to God. And because God had appointed them to eternal life, those whom he had appointed in that context believed. So that's what we see going on in that passage. And there's a couple other passages that that are important on this subject. One of them is Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. Romans 8, verses 29 through 30 probably gives the most clear explanation and concise explanation of the process of salvation. And so this is what it says, how it describes the, the process of salvation. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what we see in that is that foreknowledge has to do with the idea of God knowing the plan of salvation, knowing how he was going to work it out, who was going to... who he was going to save. And then predestination has to do with him specifically choosing, electing those who would come to faith in him. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of kind of the the, the things that it mentioned um, have to do with the other points of Calvinism. So there, so there's calling. So, so those whom he chose to be saved, he's going to call them to himself and he's going to justify them, meaning he's going to declare them as righteous. And then they're also going to be glorified in the future as well. So he's going to bring their salvation to completion. Um, but that's the other place that we see that, that language of predestination using. Um, I won't get into this a whole ton, but the other kind of key passage on this subject really is, is, is Romans nine and, and yeah. And Romans nine specifically has to do with God's sovereignty um, in salvation. And so I'll read kind of some sections of that. And, and I want to admit um, very quickly that, that Romans nine is, is a challenging passage to read and we're not going to be able to, to unpack all of it. Um, but hopefully what you see from the plain text is that that it, it describes the sovereignty of God in salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, it describes the fact that um, that God is in control of all things and that he's the one who who works out salvation. And it's 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 because of logically because of our inability that it makes sense that God is the one um, who is sovereign in salvation. So this is a section of Uh, Romans 9 and kind of what it talks about on that subject. So we'll look at kind of verses 15 through 24, but it says, um, for he says to Moses being God, God speaking to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then verse 16, it says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, 
but on God who has mercy. And then it says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why? Sorry, I lost my place really fast. Why have you made me like this? Verse 20. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to, to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And so you see there's a lot going on in that passage, but kind of mm -hmm. the overall um, the overall theme of that is that God is sovereign in salvation. Um, and part, the idea of God choosing in salvation is difficult for us to understand because we come at it from the perspective oftentimes of, well, how can he choose some and not choose others? That doesn't seem like a loving thing to do. And when we start thinking that way, what we have to be reminded of is the fact that God is the one who is perfectly just, not us. God is the one who is perfectly loving, not us. And so there is no one more qualified than God to choose those who would come to salvation. And we also must remember the fact that None of whom God has chosen to come to salvation deserves to be saved. All of us equally deserve to endure God's wrath for the punishment of our sins. But God has lovingly and mercifully chose that some would, would be saved. And so in the scriptures, when we see this concept, this is really the concept of salvation from God's perspective, that because of our inability, that God is the one who has chosen whom will be saved. And we can trust that that is loving and that that is just because that is who he is in his character and in his nature. And that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that mankind is not responsible for their actions. There is a tension between the fact that uh, God is has chosen those whom will come to salvation, but yet at the same time, man is still completely responsible for his actions. Sometimes I think with the, with the doctrine of election and predestination, we kind of think, well, well, how can someone really be responsible for their actions? Or uh, sometimes we can kind of think that someone isn't going to 
trust in Christ primarily because they weren't chosen because of God. And so it's a difficult concept to understand, but part of it is understanding that from God's perspective, he is the one who has chosen because we are unable to do so. But that in that, in that truth, no one is going to hell primarily because they are not chosen from God. Unfortunately, everyone who is not going to be saved is is not saved fundamentally because of their rejection and their rebellion against God. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a hard subject to discuss, but that's what we see in the scriptures. And we can't perfectly understand this concept. Um, and, and we're not necessarily designed to perfectly understand it, um, but it is in God's word and it is God showing us the salvation process from his perspective. And there are plenty of other passages in scriptures that speak to salvation from our perspective. And the passages that speak to salvation from our perspective tell us to repent and believe the gospel. Mm -hmm. They tell us exactly what we need to do to be saved and to come into a relationship with the Lord. And with that, we also see in in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God desires that everyone would come to the knowledge of salvation, that everyone would be saved, but we know that, that that's not going to happen because those there are those who are not going to trust in Christ and who are going to con- continue to pursue the desires of their heart and their body and their flesh. One last verse to consider on this section is 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And those verses say this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And so the context of this passage is how is a believer supposed to supposed to act, right? And it kind of gives a list of things. And the hope is that as um, believers live faithfully according to the scriptures, that unbelievers would see that and that and that they would repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. But look at specifically, where repentance comes about in these verses. It says that God perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And so it is the initiation of God. It is the work of God, the prompting of God, the drawing of God that leads to people, that leads to unbelievers turning to him to trust in Christ. So it's a difficult subject, but these are the truths that we see in Scripture. Joel, do you have anything else that you want to kind of add on on this section? Yeah. I know, I know, yeah. I mentioned a lot. It's a, it's a lot, and yeah. it's, it's Again, challenging. You make, you make many uh, good points, and so um, I don't want to go over things you've already said, but um, yeah, I think it's understandably so. It, there's many different um, feelings about election. Um, but I think uh, Spurgeon does a really great job of uh, of telling us what what 
how we should feel about it and and what should be the, the proper response. And he says this in one of his sermons. He says, uh, friends, if you want to be humbled, study election, for it will make you humble under the influence of God's spirit. Um, he who is proud of his election is not elect. And he who is humbled under a sense of it may believe that he is. He has every reason to believe that he is, for it is one of the most blessed effects of election that it helps us to humble ourselves before God. And so I think it's, and like I said earlier, when I when I first understood like this, how um, Calvinism correctly summarizes um, these doctrines of grace. Um, I'm so humbled that God would would choose me, someone who does not deserve, uh, does not deserve heaven, does not deserve Him, does not deserve righteousness, does not does not deserve salvation in any sense. But yet, God, you know, I love that you you know early on you you quoted Ephesians, um, you know, one and you know before the world's foundation that He would He would choose me and that um, and and that that is profound. That is incredibly profound um, that it was is God's sovereign power, sovereign grace, sovereign choosing that he would choose me to be a part of his family. And so, um, you know, that's why Spurgeon says, you know, the, the proper response, proper response is humility, not not pride. It's 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 oh, my gosh, like God did all this for me it is by no means of my own power, but it's all through his strength, his divine choosing, his divine will that I am um, his son and we are his sons and daughters. And so I think that's incredibly uh, important to, to recognize. I had one scripture, Second Thessalonians. I think it's just piling on what you already said, but Second Thessalonians um, 2, 13 through 14 says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. Um, from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit in faith and truth. It was for this he called you through the, our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is just, I think, adding on to what's already been said. But it's this reality that um, he chose you from the beginning before the world's foundation that you were chosen in him. And, you know, and that's why we go back to this isn't this isn't Calvin's idea. This isn't John's John Calvin's idea. This is scripture, and um, and you 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 said this from the beginning. You, it's elections in the Bible, and so you have to wrestle with that. And everyone has to have a view of election, and um, this is what we have come to understand as you know God's divine choosing, His sovereign will that He chose before the world's foundation, because that's exactly what the scriptures say, and we believe the scriptures to be true. And so that, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that quote that you gave by Spurgeon. It such a good one on this subject and that's where people a lot of times are are can be offended i think by calvinism is because a lot of people who are really vocal about being calvinist often come to, come off as being very prideful about it but when you when you study this subject especially the subject of election it is nothing to be prideful about and it is everything to be humble about absolutely that god would choose me to be his son when i have no rightful place before him when i have nothing to offer him mm -hmm. 
right? And so what what a beautiful thing. And so it's a hard concept to understand, but it is one that we see in scripture and must wrestle with. So that leads to the ne- the third point of Calvinism, which is limited atonement. So limited atonement is probably one of the most misunderstood and confusing points of Calvinism. Sometimes you'll hear people say, that they don't believe in all of the points of Calvinism. So they'll say that they're a four-point Calvinist or a three-point Calvinist. And oftentimes that has to do with the subject of limited atonement. And so I want to be really hopefully clear and precise about what we mean when we say limited atonement. So the first thing we really have to discuss is, well, if we're going to look at what is limited atonement, what actually do we mean by atonement? So The word atonement and the concept of atonement really just has to do with what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Mm -hmm. When we look at the sacrifice of Jesus, atonement has to do with what did his work actually accomplish? So when we talk about the atonement of Jesus, we primarily describe it as being a penal substitutionary atonement. And so by that, we mean that when Christ died on the cross, he took the penalty for our sins. So that's where the idea of penal comes into play. The idea that there was a penalty for sins, there's punishment for sins, and Christ in his work on the cross took that punishment for us. And not only did he take that punishment for us, but he acted as a substitution. So instead of me receiving the punishment for my sins, Christ received the punishment for my sins in my place on the cross. Mm -hmm. That's how we describe the atonement of Jesus. And so limited atonement has to do with the concept of who does Christ, who does that work of Christ, who does that apply to? That's kind of the question that limited atonement answers. And so the concept of limited atonement is really the idea that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all sin, but it's only applied to those who believe in him. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, the atonement is limited to those who genuinely trust in him. Another way that you hear limited atonement described is with the phrase uh, particular redemption. Mm -hmm. And so with it specifically referring to Christ's sacrifice on the cross was enough for, for, for all sin, but it's only applied to those who believe in him. Why does that make sense? Because for those who don't believe in him, Christ didn't forgive their sins. Right. And so the consequence of not trusting in Christ is that you have to receive the punishment for your sins in eternal separation and eternal destruction in hell. And so in that way, those who trust, those who don't trust 
in Christ aren't forgiven of their sins. They have to suffer the consequences of their sins. And so the work of Christ is sufficient for all sin, but it's only applied to those who trust in Christ. Only those who trust in Christ are forgiven of their sins. And so the opposite of limited atonement is what some people would describe as like unlimited atonement. In in other words, the idea would be that Christ's sacrifice does apply to everyone. So think about the problem that comes from that. If Christ's sacrifice is unlimited and applied to everyone, that means that everyone would be going to heaven. That would mean that everyone is going to be saved It's if Christ's sacrifice is applied to everyone. And so that means that you're a universalist, yeah. right? So the other option is that if Christ's sacrifice is applied to everyone, then that means there are people who don't believe, who are forgiven of their sins, but still going to hell. And so then what what, what is the purpose of hell? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the 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 purpose of hell as we've explained is that for those who who continue to rebel against God, don't obey him and reject them, pursue the desires of their heart and their body and their mind, they have to suffer the punishment for their sins. And so the sacrifice of Christ is is not applied to them. And so that's why we say when we're when we're talking about the work of Christ and specifically what he has done, we say that it's sufficient for all sin, but it's only applied to you when you trust in Christ, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So that's kind of the concept of limited atonement, but let's look at some some different passages that kind of demonstrate the truth of that. So one passage would be like Mark 10, 45, which says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So notice the, the, it, the sacrifice of Christ is, is applied to many, right? Mm-hmm. We see the same concept in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. So same kind of language used that the sacrifice of Christ was for the sins of many in contrast to being applied to every person ever, if that makes sense. Another scripture with that is Isaiah 53, 12, and where it says, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So same kind of uh, concept that the sacrifice of Christ is being applied to many rather than to everyone who ever existed. Some of the, the, the main verses that seem to contradict this truth is 1 John 2 and also Romans chapter 5, verse 18. So uh, 
First John chapter two, verse two says, talking of Christ says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for also the sins of the whole world. And so that verse seems to indicate, it seems to contradict what the previous verses has have said. What's important to understand is that because the scriptures are from God, we know that the scriptures don't contradict right. each other. We know that they are consistent and don't have errors. And so uh, part of understanding what that means is really looking at, well, what does he mean by the term, the whole world. And what you see consistently in scriptures is that the idea of the use of the, the word, the term world doesn't mean logically every person who has ever existed. Yeah. And it, it, it really doesn't mean that in any context in the scriptures where you, where you, see the term being used, right? And, and and that can kind of be explained if we notice what the verse is actually saying. So when we look at the context of what's being said, John is speaking to a specific audience. Mm -hmm. And so what he's saying is that he is the propitiation for our sins. And then he says, not for ours only, but for also the sins of the whole world. And so John is saying, he's speaking to his audience and he's saying that what Christ has done on the cross is for us. It's for you as the audience and it's for me as well. But then what he goes on to say is that it's not only for us. It's not only just for me and for the audience, the readers of first John, but it's also for all kinds of people throughout the entire world. Right. And so the term that's being used whole world isn't referring to the sacrifice of Christ being applied to every person who's ever existed. Rather, it's speaking to the fact that the sacrifices of Christ is, is not limited to a specific people. It's not limited to just the Jews, right? And that's consistent throughout the scriptures that that the sacrifice of Christ is for the Jews and for the Gentiles. It's for all, all the different peoples and nationalities of the entire world. Right. Right. And so that's um, a good way to understand what he's really saying in that passage. Another one that can be confusing that seems to contradict uh, what the other passages that, that we've looked at is Romans 5.18. So speaking of Christ, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Right? So it's kind of confusing when you take the verse just as it is by itself, because if the term all men refers to every person who's ever existed is going to be justified, then that what, what that means is that everyone is going to be saved and no one's going to hell, which contradicts what the rest of the scriptures say about that subject. And so in the same way, all isn't referring to every person who's ever, ever been created, but rather it's referring to all of the peoples of the earth without distinction. And, and 
the way that we see this play out it is really it's actually funny because we've been in Romans on Sunday mornings mm-hmm. and and what we see in Romans in the first this is Romans 5:18 in the chapters uh before Romans 5 so verse so chapters 1 through 4 Paul has been consistently putting forth the argument that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, that all, meaning all peoples of the earth, are equally in need of the gospel, Mm. and all of them equally can receive the gospel. So in the same way, it's the sacrifice of Christ is not being applied in this passage to everyone who has ever existed, but rather to all of the peoples of the earth, if that makes sense. Mm. So so that's kind of how we're to understand limited atonement um, and what it means, again, that the sacrifice and the work of Christ is sufficient for all sin, but it's only applied to those who believe. You only receive the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness of sins as a believer when you trust in Christ. Those who are are not believers will have to are not forgiven of their sins and will have to suffer the punishment of their sins um mm-hmm. in eternal separation and eternal anguish from God and that's and that truth is what should lead us to be faithful in sharing the gospel mm-hmm. with people yeah. telling them that they need the forgiveness of sins that the wrath of God is coming as Ephesians and as Colossians says, um, but that there is salvation and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God and that it's only through Christ. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to add on that subject of limited it's atonement? hard to add to that one, but um, yeah, I think, I think specifically on this subject, um, it's important to understand that there's God's perspective and man's perspective. And, uh, you know, from, from man's perspective, um, you know, God's salvation, it is offered to all. And that's why we preach it to all. It is offered to every single person. Um, but it's only the salvation, his atonement's only applied to those who actually believe. And so you've already said that well. I think uh, Spurgeon speaks um, more specifically on on God's perspective and what he has come to accomplish and his, his sovereign will being done. And he says this, um, we hold... We are not afraid to say what we believe, that Christ came into this world with the intention of saving a multitude which no man can number. And we believe that as the result of this, every person for whom he died must, beyond the shadow of a doubt, be cleansed from sin and stand, washed in his blood before the Father's throne. And so every single person that Christ has um, come to die for, he will accomplish his sanctification. He will accomplish um, bringing them to himself, drawing them to himself and, and saving them from their sins through the, the, the atonement. And so, yeah, I think you've said it well, but that that's just something I would like to add on the end there. Yeah, that's great. And so as we move, as we move forward, the, the fourth point of, of Calvinism is, is what's known as irresistible grace. Um, and so, Irresistible grace, uh, in a simple way, is really the idea that everyone who God has chosen to be saved will come to salvation as God calls them 
to himself. I'll say that again. Everyone who God has chosen to be saved will come to salvation as God calls them to himself. And so what we've seen is that in total depravity that we are completely hopeless, that we're we're lost, and that we can't initiate the salvation process. What we see in unconditional election is that because we can't initiate, that, that God has chosen whom will be saved. And in limited atonement, what we've seen is that those whom God has chosen to save will have the righteousness of Christ because he will apply the work of Christ to those believers. And so the next kind of logical step in that is that, you know, how will they actually come to salvation? So the concept of, of irresistible grace is really that, that God is going to call those who will be saved to themselves. He's going to call them and he's going to draw them um, to himself. And those who are going to be saved will come to him. They will come to salvation. They won't, they won't. The idea of irresistible grace is that as God calls you, you're not going to be able to resist his grace because it's it's so good, mm-hmm. and because it's so kind and so loving and so um, merciful. And so everyone who is who will be saved, God is going to call to salvation um, as he calls them to himself. And so we see that in a handful of scriptures uh, throughout the Bible. We've mentioned this scripture already, but that is really the principle that we see in John six forty four. So I'll read that again. It says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Mm-hmm. So that idea that it's not us first coming to God. It's us coming to God because God has drawn, is going to draw us to himself. Uh, we we also see that in John uh, 6, verse 37. It says, all that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So those who are are going to be saved will come to God as he calls them. We also see that we looked at Romans chapter 8 verses 29 through 30, and that's part of the salvation process that it, that it explains. After it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then it says, and those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the next kind of step after God um, electing those whom will come to salvation is that he they are going to come to salvation through him calling them and drawing them to himself. And then we see this concept as well as in John 10, uh, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So you see that those concepts of the fact that those who are Christ's will know him, and they will listen to him, and they will come to him. 
we see that as well in in later on in in the following verses in John 10 27 um, Jesus also says my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me hmm. and then lastly in uh, John 6 verse 39 and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So those who are Christ's, those who have been elected to be saved, chosen to be saved by God, will come to salvation. They will never be cast out. So that's kind of the concept of irresistible grace is that in that process, part of going from unbeliever to believer is that God is going to call you to himself. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit that we see in John 16 is that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning judgment mm -hmm. and sin and righteousness, right? And so it's it's God convicting us of those things and drawing us to himself and showing us, revealing to us our own need and giving us the faith to trust and believe in his work on the cross. Yeah. Anything else you want to add to that point of irresistible grace? Yeah. I, um, I think at this point, if you, like, as you said in the very beginning, like if you understand total depravity, then these things fall into place. Everything else logically flows. And I think irresistible grace is, is one of those, because as you can see by um, our, inability to respond on our own to salvation, right? Like I quoted earlier, the John 6, 63, that it's the spirit, the Holy Spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all in, in terms of responding and, um, to salvation. If you understand that, then you understand that, that, um, that it's by God's sovereign power, his grace, that he draws us to himself. Now, that's something because God is sovereign, much stronger, much uh, has greater reign than we do. Uh, we can't resist against that. And, and I think where uh, the, I think a lot of people kind of object to this, this point is, you know, the idea of backsliding or uh, of, of people who maybe at one point had um, heard the grace of God and, and they resisted, or even just the idea of someone like hearing a, a gospel message and then they're just like, uh, I'm good, you know, and, and walk away from it. But, but I think we're going to get into a lot of that when we get into the next point um, of perseverance of the saints. So go ahead and take that one away. Yeah. So, so we, we will get into that right now. And, and that kind of comes with the last point um, of Calvinism, which is known as perseverance of the saints. So, so the idea of perseverance of the saints is that Everyone who comes to salvation will persevere till the end, progressively becoming more like Christ. Mm -hmm. Or in other words, no one can lose their salvation. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that again. Really think about what's being said and how that's being described. Everyone who is saved will persevere till the end, progressively becoming more like Christ. And in that, no one will lose their salvation. One of my favorite quotes from uh, John MacArthur is, uh, if you could lose your salvation, you would right. lose your salvation. Um, 
And, and that fundamentally comes from the first point that we looked at, that that is how desperately hopeless we are and enslaved to sin that we are. That if it was possible for us to lose our salvation, we undoubtedly and we confidently would lose our salvation. Because mm-hmm. that is the depths of how sinful we are yeah. and how enslaved to sin we are apart from Christ. And so it is by God's grace and by God's help that we persevere in our faith and that we pro- progressively become more like Christ throughout our life. And what a beautiful thing, what a beautiful truth it is that we can't lose our salvation. We'll kind of talk about the implications of that. But first, some scriptures for where we see this concept of persevering to the end and not losing your salvation. Uh, we've looked at a few of these already, but John uh, six thirty seven, 37, uh, all that the Father has given me uh, will come to me. Uh, and then the second part of that is really that that concept of perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. Whom, whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we see that concept of once we are his, he will. we are always his. He will never cast us out. We also see that in John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that all the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So no one who God has elected to come to salvation will be lost. They will come to salvation. Jesus isn't going to lose any of them. And then he goes on to say, but I'm going to raise them up on the last day. They're going to be resurrected. They're going to be glorified just like me. He's going to complete our salvation. We also see this concept in John 10. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So what we see from that verse is Jesus saying that we as believers are his and not only are we his, but we also are the father's as well. So we can't be taken from Jesus and we can't be taken from the Father. We are eternally secure. We belong to God. We are adopted as his children when we trust and believe in him. And it will never not be that way. We will never be cast away. Another place that we see this doctrine very clearly is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is what Paul says. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So very, very plainly, that one, on the one hand, it's God who has began the good work in us, and it is God who will bring it to completion. Mm-hmm. The reason that this doctrine is so important is because sometimes we kind of have this idea that I couldn't save myself. I couldn't initiate my relationship with God. That's something that he had to do. But now that I'm in a relationship with God, it's up to me to sustain that relationship. And this doctrine speaks directly against that. 
think about it. If, if you were not able to save yourself and to initiate your own relationship with God, then on what basis do you think that you can sustain your relationship with him? The work of Christ is not only sufficient in saving you, but it is sufficient in sustaining you and bringing that good work of salvation to completion, right? And so it's God's work that he not only brings us to salvation, to trust in him, but that he also helps us to continue to trust in him and to progressively become more like him. And as you mentioned, oftentimes with this subject, it kind of, it brings up the question of what about those who look like they were Christian? Um, They claim maybe, maybe someone in your life claimed to be Christian, um, but they have since walked away from the faith. Is that not them losing their salvation? And so the, the scriptures offer several points to to that kind of issue and and with that it's it's important to remember that oftentimes when we see situations like that we judge based on appearance we judge based on what we see and we only see the outward appearance and so we have to remember that it is God who sees what's happening in the heart, not us. But the scriptures do help us understand that subject of what do we do with a situation where someone, it seemed like they were a believer, but it seems like they've walked away or they're, they're now rejecting the gospel. One passage that helps us understand that is Luke 15. Uh, Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. So in the story of the prodigal son, uh, the son takes his inheritance and uh, he leaves his father and he uh, he squanders it and he, he lives in unrighteousness and pursues the desires of his heart um, and does all the things that he uh, wants to do, but then he ultimately comes back. Uh, and what's unique about that story is that when he comes back, uh, the father had been looking for him mm-hmm. essentially. And so, so what the principle that comes from that is, is that, yeah, sometimes God allows us as believers to wander from him in our faith. And that doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. The son, the prodigal son was always a son. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a situation in which he he was no longer a son. In the story, he is always the son. And so he didn't lose, he didn't lose that. In the same way, God sometimes allows us to wander away from him, but ultimately what happens is he brings us back to himself. That's also the concept of what we see in Jesus going after the lost sheep mm-hmm. as well. Another answer to that question of, well, what do we do with someone who seems like they were a Christian? Maybe they claim to be, but now they're rejecting the gospel. Uh, a key passage for that is, is 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 19. 
And just to kind of summarize that passage for the sake of time, it, it says that those who went out from us, who, who left us, who left the church, they, they did so in order to prove that they weren't of us. Hmm. And so what that verse is communicating is that although there are people who are going to come to church and they may give the appearance of being a believer, if they walk away and reject the gospel and never come back, they've proved that they never truly believed in the first place. And so it's a it's a challenging subject and it's also often a a very personal one for people because they have people have relatives and friends in their lives who who have done this, right? And so the solution for either case, whether or not they are a believer and God is letting them wander or if they never really believed in the gospel in the first place, the solution is the same. They, they both need the gospel. Yeah. So that's what we are to pray for them. And that's what we are to communicate to them. Yeah. Anything else you want to add on the subject of perseverance of the saints? Well, you're absolutely right. Like we, yeah, I've, I've seen that in my own life, you know, people who, um, said they're Christians could tell you what the gospel was and they walk away. And I think the, one of the, one of the only proper responses to that is praying for them, um, and, and, and encouraging them to come back to the, to the truth. And, uh, there's the reality that, um, they, they can come back at some point or they, they never were. And I think that's, um, it's a hard, hard understanding to, to hold on to, but, um, it's the one that the Bible presents and, um, uh, Spurgeon, has a great, um, great quote on, on this very idea of, of just backsliding and, and the kind of perspective that we have on that. And he says, uh, it is nowhere said in scripture that if a man, um, fall, he cannot be renewed. On the contrary, the righteous falls seven times, but he rises up again. And however many times the child of God does fall, the Lord still holds the righteous. Yes, when our bones are broken, he binds up our bones again and sets us once more upon a rock. He says, return, you backsliding children of men, for I am married unto you. And if the Christian does backslide ever so far, still almighty mercy cries, return, return, return and seek an injured father's heart. And so, you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna sin, we're, we're gonna struggle. And even sometimes we're gonna have great doubt and seasons of doubt where, it, um, this happens, you know, where, um, it may even seem like, um, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ you know, are, are completely falling away. Um, but, but Christ, if, if they are truly his, he's going to call them back to repentance and they will repent. And that's the perspective, perspective we have to hold. And, um, I think too, uh, Spurgeon also, I won't like quote him verbatim here, but he, uh, he says the, the, basically the best possible illustration he can give for this idea is, um, the, the difference between someone fainting and someone actually being dead. Um, from our perspective, looking at the person that has fainted, they look dead to us, but really they have just fainted and they are still alive versus that the person who is actually dead, they will never get up again. And, and, and that's, that's what it is with, uh, those who, um, who backslide and come back. Um, they, they fainted, you know, um, it's from that perspective that we see, 
Um, but yeah, uh, great job, Josh. I think that that really helped explain the five points of Calvinism. So the kind of uh, one of our last questions, um, which I think gets pretty simply um, answered. But it so so is Calvinism biblical then? Yeah. So that's kind of that's the title of this podcast and kind of the question that we we wanted to answer through explaining what Calvinism is. And so I mean, hopefully, from what we've demonstrated through walking through Calvinism is the answer very simply is yes, Calvinism um, is biblical um, because the the points of Calvinism really just summarize what the Bible teaches about the process of salvation. Yeah. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, you're not going to see us as a church using the term Calvinism very often. And again, we've said this before, but we, we don't believe Calvinism is biblical because we love John Calvin or because we follow his teachings. We, first and foremost, are followers of Christ, and we follow his scriptures. The Bible is the only source of authority over our lives as believers. And so Calvinism is biblical because it correctly summarizes what the Bible teaches about the process of salvation. But we want to be very careful in using the label Calvinism um, because in the scriptures, you really don't see any other, you don't see Christians labeling themselves as anything other than being followers of Christ. Right. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. It says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, uh, my brothers, uh, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except uh, Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he goes on later to say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Um, and so we want to be very careful in the way that we use labels such as Calvinism. And so you're not going to hear us use that term. What we've communicated in this podcast is, is this is what Calvinism is. Um, it is biblical um, because it summarizes biblical truth. Um, on these doctrines. But what we're primarily going to use is the scriptures. We're primarily going to teach these doctrines from the scriptures that demonstrate these things. And so that's what you're going to see and hear from us as we teach the, the scriptures faithfully um, on Sunday mornings. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And like I said earlier, like we we don't worship John Calvin and he's he is a sinful man. That died a long time ago. Um, and I, I honestly, I can't remember the last time I really like talked about Calvinism with a person because 
I talk about scripture all the time. I don't need to talk about John Calvin. I know, I know how he summarized the scriptures and I think he did a good job in, um, on these points, but, um, but yeah, uh, we, we don't follow him. We follow Christ and he, Christ is worthy of our worship. Calvin's not. Um, and so that's, I think that's important that we don't, um, that, that we're careful labeling ourselves a certain way. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the next question is this, uh, what are some misconceptions about Calvinism? Yeah, there's, there's a few that, that I wanted to address really, really briefly, but I, I think one of the misconceptions that comes with Calvinism is, is that I don't need to, if Calvinism is true and biblical, then that means that I don't need to evangelize. That means that we don't need to do missions. Um, and it's, it's quite the contrary. Um, I would address that kind of misconception by saying, although God has chosen whom will come to salvation, we don't know who specifically he has chosen. And what we see in the scriptures, specifically in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 4, I believe, is, is that God desires that all would come to salvation, even though there is the truth that not all will come to salvation. And so we do still need to evangelize. One, because that's the command of Scripture. That is the Great Commission that we would make disciples of all nations. And part of that is evangelizing, is is telling people the gospel. Um, and so we don't, although we see in the scriptures that from God's perspective, he knows who will be saved and has chosen them. We don't have that information. Right. And so, and that's not what, that's not the role that God has given us. The role that God has given us is to share the gospel with everyone because he desires everyone to hear the gospel and, and come to the knowledge of who he is. Secondly, I would say that God could have used any means necessary to spread the gospel, but he chose to do it through us. Right. He chose to do it through us. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says in verse 18 and 19, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is God, or excuse me, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so God is, is all powerful and all sovereign. He could have chosen any means necessary to bring people to salvation. And yet he has chosen to entrust us with the message of the gospel that we might share the gospel with the people that God has put in our lives and in the various contexts that God has given us to do so. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, I would say that the biblical truths of Calvinism actually encourage evangelism because we know from these truths that it is God who saves people, not us. Mm -hmm. And so what comes from that also is that we, if it is God who saves people and not of our own doing because I didn't save myself mm -hmm. and I'm not going to save anyone else either. 
what comes from that is, is the confidence that and the guarantee that when the gospel is preached, people will come to salvation. Right. And so the truths of Calvinism actually encourage evangelism because we trust that it is God who does the work of salvation and that as we faithfully share the gospel, that people will come to know and trust in Christ for salvation because God is drawing them to himself and he's using us to communicate the truths of the gospel and the truths of the scriptures. So I would actually say that that is a misconception that we don't need to evangelize. And to the contrary, the truths that of the Bible that Calvinism summarizes actually encourages us um, to evangelize. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to add to that kind of misconception? I would just, well, I would just add some, some more proof that, um, you know, it's because of the doctrines of grace, these doctrines of Calvinism that, um, encouraged a, a guy like Hudson Taylor to go from England, you know, to, it was about 200 years ago, go from England and go to sail all the way to China and to start the China, uh, inland church. And so, uh, you know, I think, uh, it's important to, uh, understand that. Like these, these doctrines encourage evangelism. We can have confidence. I think that's the thing you were capitalizing on, that we have confidence in that, um, that when we preach the gospel, that God's going to draw people to himself. And it's, it's not on our, by our own power. It's by God's sovereign will, by his power that this happens. And we can, I think, rest peacefully knowing that um, that's exactly what God has in mind and, and it will do exactly what he wills. And uh, that's comforting to be a part of that. Um, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then kind of just a, a final misconception that can come with uh, Calvinism is kind of the idea that like we don't need to pray like if, if God has right. has is sovereign over everything and, and has chosen, you know, who will be saved, who will come to salvation, then then we don't really need to pray for people to be saved. You know, we don't really need to pray. What's the purpose of prayer, so to speak? So, um, so yeah, I would say to that, you know, that that fundamentally you you have to understand the purpose of prayer and prayer isn't about what god knows or doesn't know um prayer is primarily about changing our hearts to become more like him and aligning our hearts to be what is to be in line with what his will is mm -hmm. right um and so we have to understand that really that is the purpose of prayer. And in addition to that, prayer is also still necessary because it's a part of our relationship with God. The, the results of what God has done for us in salvation is not just that we are saved from his wrath. That is a very significant part of our salvation. But the other half of that is that we are reconciled to God that we have a relationship with God. And so part of that relationship involves communication. For relationships to be genuine in every context, it involves communication. And so prayer at a very simple and basic level is part of our relationship with God and how we communicate with him um, and, and how he changes us. Um, and it's also... It's also such an incredible thing. It's such an incredible privilege that we have because without Christ, 
you could you could not you do not have the the privilege of talking to God. You're separated from him. So because of what God has done in salvation, we have the great privilege of prayer that we can talk to him and that we can uh, communicate the things that are going on in our lives. We can pray for people and he cares about the things that are going on um, in our lives. The scriptures say that he, he cares about uh, the anxieties that we have in our lives, that we communicate those things to him. And, and part of that is, you know, if you think of it this way, as a parent, you, you might know that's, you might know that your child is doing something that's wrong, but that doesn't mean that you don't desire to talk with them about it. Just because you have knowledge of what's going on doesn't exclude communication, right. if that makes sense. And so just because God is all-knowing and he has chosen those who will come to salvation, who will be saved, doesn't mean, doesn't exclude prayer. We still need uh, to pray to God, and that's a natural part and necessary part and privilege of of our relationship with the Lord. Yeah. Anything else you want to add on that? No, I think you did a great job. I think you covered this subject really well, so I appreciate you doing that, Josh. And uh, I think uh, I think that answers all the questions that I had for you today. Uh, but kind of last thing, could you give us some um, resources for those who are hungry to learn more about these truths that we were talking about in Scripture? Can you give us some resources um, that we could dive into on our own? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more to be discussed on this subject. There's a, and there's a ton that's written on this subject as well. Uh, before we get to kind of some of those resources, I, I would I would first encourage you to seek to understand what Calvinism is before you disagree with it. Um, that, that's a, a huge problem that I see kind of with this subject is that is that people will disagree with Calvinism more primarily because they've had a poor experience with someone who was very prideful about Calvinism. And so what I would encourage is that before you disagree with Calvinism, seek to understand what it is. And as we've demonstrated, hopefully today, it is that it's, it's throughout all of the scriptures. It summarizes biblical truth. And so with that, the, the first resource um, is that you, you really need to read the Bible for yourself. Um, another reason that, that people, um, what happens is that people often disagree with Calvinism, uh, without knowing what the scriptures say, without having studied the scriptures for themselves. And so the first thing that I would say is before you go to any other resources about Calvinism, I would say, make sure that you are reading God's word for yourself seeking to understand what it says and what it means through um, the power of the Holy Spirit helping you. And also in that, there's hard truths in Scripture. We've looked at some of those hard truths today, but it is nonetheless God's Word, and it is nonetheless truth about Him. And so if you're struggling with accepting some of these truths that are in Scripture, ask God to help you 
to submit to his word. Um, some other resources that are helpful, uh, two books that we quoted often from today. One is called Mere Calvinism, and that's by uh, Jim Oric. I love that resource because it's really, really extremely easy to read, very concise and very plain. It's not a difficult read at all. Um, and so he very, very uh, concisely explains a lot of these concepts and gives a lot of reflective questions to think about. And at the end of the book, he talks about, uh, well, what if these points of Calvinism aren't true? What are kind of the implications of that? So that's a really good resource if you want to read more on this subject. Another one is if you just want more of uh like a little bit, maybe more of an academic resource, uh, more of the history of Calvinism and Armini Arminianism, um, then I would encourage you to read The Five Points of Calvinism, uh, def Defined, Defended, and Documented, which is David Steele, uh, Curtis uh, Thomas, and then Lance Quinn. It's a good resource as well. And that's where we pulled a lot of the, the history of Calvinism uh, from and earlier today. And then lastly, if you if you want some, maybe some shorter resources, some shorter articles to read just to understand these truths, um, we always in would encourage you to read um, gotquestions.org. Um, they have a lot of good resources on, uh, on these subjects, and they're done in a very concise way, and they're full of uh, scripture references as well. Um, and so, yeah, those should be some helpful resources if you want to dig in more deeply on this subject. That's right. I love got questions. Also, what I was using um, is a, a book called Spurgeon's Calvinism, uh, which is essentially a collection of Spurgeon's sermons on on Calvinism. So, um, yeah, I really encourage you guys to look into that as well. Well, thank you so much, Josh. This has been really helpful for me as a uh, as a reminder of the great doctrines of of grace that we get to see in the in the scriptures, and that's been summarized by um, Calvin and and his followers. And so, thank you for that. I appreciate that, Josh. Uh, you've been listening to the LBC podcast, a podcast of Laura Glenn Bible Church in Bakersfield, California. If you like listening to this podcast, please share with a friend and hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on uh, all new podcasts. Thank you so much.